When I was in uh, college, uh, going to Bible school, preparing for ministry, one of the things that I thought that I ought to do sometime is that I ought to read through the Bible since I was going to be teaching it and, uh, and that kind of thing. And I had never sat down and read from Genesis clear through to Revelation. And so I had this wild idea that I'd do that while I was in college. But uh, those of you who have been to college know that uh, college is pretty busy. And so I, I didn't accomplish that. So when I got out of college... Uh, got back into ministry, I thought, I've got to do this. So I outlined how I was going to do it. I started plowing through about uh, 20 pages a day. And some days I made it, some days I didn't. But I finally finished after about four months. And my life was different. I was a changed person because I, I had seen God like I'd never seen Him before. And I'd seen men like I'd never seen Him before, and women. And, uh, and I've made that a habit of my life, to do that every once in a while regularly so that I can uh, get that same kind of blessing. And I've started over reading through the Bible. And the thing that I'm amazed about is that when God describes people, He describes them just the way they are. He doesn't just give us all the good things about them, but He gives us the failures and the, the inconsistencies. But that's not discouraging. I found that's kind of encouraging when God does that because He loves us just the way we are. And He accepts us just the way we are. And as, uh, as we look at a man's life today, a man named Jacob, we're going to see that uh, he was a little inconsistent sometimes. Uh, lots of times. But God loved him and God dealt with him uh, in love. You know, I, I think when I was a, a young Christian, that one of the first things I learned was that God hated sin. And I can remember the guys preaching it, beating on the pulpit, and God is going to judge sin. And that's true when you read the Bible. God is going to judge sin, and God does hate sin. And I, and I thought about that, but I think I got the wrong idea in my mind. And I think some, some of us have the same idea I had. I thought God was kind of a crotchety old guy with a club in one hand, a bolt of lightning in the other hand, and when I stepped out of line, you know, it was Zappo with both of them at the same time. And so I was always living under the pressure of trying to perform for God. And I think at times I still have that idea. When I sin, I think, oh boy, God's going to get me now. But you know, God isn't so much like that. God hates sin, but not because it, 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 it affects Him or, or He's afraid to be associated with us because we sin, but because He loves us and He knows when we sin that that is hurting us and that destroys our relationships with other people. And so God deals with sin, sometimes pretty harshly. I don't know if you've ever been involved in sin as a child of God and, and God comes along and He begins to deal in your life to bring you to Himself. The reason He does that is because He loves you. And he wants to make it right in your life so that you can move ahead through life successfully. And that's the good news about the New Testament, about Jesus Christ coming. He came, he gave his life, shed his blood, was raised from the dead. And as a result, when we're clothed in Christ, when we're in him, we have the ability to conquer sin. And we don't have to be easily beset by sin any longer. We want to take some time this morning and, and look at the life of Jacob and see how he was a sinner and identify a lot with him. But we also want to see how God dealt with his sin and what it took to, to bring him to the place where he wasn't dependent upon himself any longer, but he was dependent upon God. I want you to turn in your Bibles 
to Genesis chapter 32. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, share with the person next to you, or uh, hopefully there's some in the pews in front of you. Just before we get into the 32nd chapter of, of Genesis, let me give you kind of a big overview of Jacob's life, because I think it's, it's easier to understand what we're going to see here in his life in chapter 32 if you understand what his life was like. You can divide Jacob's life into probably three different distinct phases. The first one is uh, when he was living in the land of Canaan, the promised land, with his family. He lived there 70 to 75 years. And you'll find that his basic lifestyle was that Jacob was a schemer and a planner, and he was uh, always manipulating people and that kind of thing. Remember, God had promised him that he would be the heir of his father, and he would, uh, he would inherit the promised land. And he didn't wait on God, but he schemed and worked it out himself. And the results were kind of devastating. His family began to break up. He was alienated from his brother. Esau, his brother, said... Uh, when my dad dies, I'm going to kill Jacob. And so uh, so Jacob fled. He had to leave the promised land. And that's where we began the second phase of his life. Jacob goes to Haran to live with his uncle. And remember, he, he sees God on the way. Dave Roper talked about that last week. He, he sees God at Bethel. And his life has changed. And he, he lives there in Haran with his uncle for about 20 years. And his basic lifestyle is that he trusts God and he does the things that God desires. And his uncle was as tricky as he was and he kind of got the best of Jacob. But Jacob allowed God to fight for him and he allowed God to work out uh, what he wanted to work out in his circumstance. And Jacob, when he left Haran, he left a wealthy man. He had gone there just with, with his staff in his hand, but he left a wealthy man. And if you put those two together, you see that Jacob, at, at, at points early in his life, trusted himself. And then he, he walked for a time with God and trusted God. But then at the end of that 20 years, he kind of blitzed out of there and didn't tell anyone where he was going after God had told him to go back to the promised land. And you find that Jacob's kind of tossed back and forth between trusting himself and trusting God. And that's where we pick it up in the 32nd chapter of Genesis. Jacob is right at the verge of going into the promised land. He's camped along the Jabbok River. Chapter 32 of Genesis, verse 1. Let's pick it up there. Now, as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him, and Jacob said when he saw them, This is God's camp. So he named the place Manum. We find that God kind of rolls back from Jacob's eyes so he can see past just the physical things. And he sees these angels that are there with him. And he names the place Manum, and that, that name means two companies. Uh, Jacob recognizes that he's got all his belongings and his people together, and then he sees the angels. And I think God revealed those angels to him so that Jacob wouldn't have to trust his own resources and trust himself, but he could trust God because God was giving him some very tangible evidence that he was there and he was going to go with him and he was going to deliver him and he was going to encamp himself around him for protection. You know, we're like that too, aren't we? God has promised to take us through life and to deliver us and meet the needs that we have. 
And yet we're faced like Jacob with a decision when we come to a crisis. We have a choice. We can either choose to to rely on God's resources or we can rely on our own. And if you look through the Bible, there's another account in the Old Testament about a man named Elisha who was a prophet of God. And one time uh, this whole army was, was coming on him to, to wipe him out because he'd given some bad prophecy about them. And, uh, and this prophet says, God, open their eyes so they can see all of your armies all around them. God opened their eyes and they looked around them. Here were all these angels of God surrounding them. And they said, we surrender. And, uh, and he led them right into the enemy's capital city, into Jerusalem. And they were conquered. In the book of Psalms, it says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he rescues them. And so Jacob was faced with a choice. He, uh, he had to choose whether or not he was going to trust in God's resources or his own resources. Let's go on and, and follow the narrative in chapter 32, verse 3. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Sur, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban, and I have stayed until now, and I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in his sight. Jacob is set, sitting there, and, and he's saying, Boy, I've, I've really wronged my brother Esau. I think I need to send messengers to see if we can reconcile our relationship. I think the reason he was probably thinking that was because he knew that if he entered the promised land, if he was going to receive the blessing, he needed to be reconciled to his brother so that there would be peace. And, and that's just kind of a forerunner to a New Testament principle that Jesus has given us. Remember in Matthew, it says, if you're presenting your offerings at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering... Go to your brother, first be reconciled to him, and then come back and present your offerings to the Lord. And so he recognized that he needs to reconcile himself with his brother. So he sends the messengers and he gives them specific words to say. Notice his wording. Esau, I've done okay. I've been in Haran. I've, I've acquired male servants, female servants, and flocks. I'm not broke. I'm not coming asking for a loan. But notice what he's wanting to do. He's wanting to find favor in Esau's sight. Esau had been tricked by Jacob. Jacob had schemed and he had manipulated, taken advantage of Esau two different times. And Esau was wanting to kill him. And I think Jacob was afraid. So he wanted to send some messengers to see if if Esau would forgive him for that. And that could be cleared up so he could enter the land in peace. And this word favor is, is the word grace. He wanted to receive something that he didn't deserve. So the messengers go and they meet Esau and they give him the message. And then the messengers come back. Verse 6, And the messengers returned to Jacob and they said, We came to your brother Esau and furthermore he is coming to meet you. And then I think there was a long pause and then they said, By the way, uh, there's 400 men with him. 
And can you imagine what went through Jacob's mind? Have you guys ever wronged someone? Have you ever talked behind someone's back or cheated them out of something? Every time their name is mentioned, there's that instant guilt. You begin to sweat and perspire. And then if they come around and you see them, it's even worse. And I think that's what went through Jacob's mind. He thought, oh no, you know, his heart sunk or sank, I'm not sure which. But uh, but he was scared. And, and you know, at that point, I'd be scared too. Uh, and, and that's what it says in the Bible, verse 7. And Jacob was greatly afraid, and not only greatly afraid, but he was also distressed. And so here's what he did. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. Jacob's immediate response is, okay, let's see, we've got to get it together here. We've got to help God out. Um, and so he begins dividing the people. Try and picture in your mind what's going on. Jacob's here. He has all kinds of animals and servants and, and kids running all over the place. And he's trying to divide them into two companies, hoping that if Esau comes, he'll meet up with one company and the other guys will escape. And so he's doing all this. It's probably pandemonium, really confusing. And then he gets that done, and then he prays. And here's what he prays. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who did say to me, Return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. God, I'm unworthy of all the loving kindness and all the faithfulness which you have shown to me, thy servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mothers with their children. For thou didst say, I will surely prosper you. And make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered or for multitude. Jacob stops and he prays. Notice Jacob, though. He, he plans a little on his own, and then he feels like maybe he better involve God. And then we'll find that he goes back to scheming. Are you ever like that? Do you know that God gives you direction to do something? You, you, you read a principle in his word... And you kind of overlook it, maybe you try and work it out on your own, and then you say, well, boy, I better involve God in this. I better pray. And, and then you start to plan again. I've done that before, involved in ministry. Like, things began to fall apart with some of the, the high schoolers. And my response is, man, I better, I better get with it. And I start planning out things. I say, oh, Lord, I better pray. And so I get before the Lord and, and have to confess because I'd, I'd planned before I'd even said, God, what's your desire? And that's what, what Jacob did. And then we find in verse 13, after he prays, it's right back to his planning. He spent the night there, and then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. There's nothing wrong with him giving his brother a present, I don't think, but if you read on, we won't read it. What you find is Jacob took a lot of the wealth that he had and, and, he, and he thought in his mind, he thought, I'll send Esau a present and the way I'll send it is this. I'll get 220 goats and I'll put them in a company and I'll send them out and I'll put a messenger behind them. After those 220 goats, I'll put 220 sheep, send another messenger. 
Then I'll put uh, 60 camels, 50 cows in another company, and 30 donkeys. And I'll give each of these messengers a message to tell Esau when they meet up with him. And here's the message that he gave him. And, and notice his wording again. Uh, verse 17. When my brother Esau meets you and he asks you, saying, To whom do you belong and where are you going and whom do these animals in front of you belong? This is what you should say. These things belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my lord Esau. And behold, also he is behind us. <laughs> you go and tell him that these are for him and say that I'm coming. And then he goes down and, and, and repeats it. He says, uh, behold, your servant Jacob is behind you. And here's what his plan is. And this shows Jacob's motives in verse 20. He says, Jacob says, I will appease Esau with the present that goes before me. Then afterwards I will see his face and perhaps he will accept me. So Jacob schemes again, hoping that he can appease his brother. He, he gives it his best shot. That's his best effort. And then they camped for the night after they sent all these gifts out. They're camped there and, uh, and everybody's began to go to sleep. Except Jacob. He's probably still scared and his heart's gone 100 miles an hour. Verse 22, after everyone's camped down, bedded down, it says, Jacob arose that same night. He took his wives and his two maids and his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and he sent them across the stream uh, and, and everything that he had. Jacob gets up, packs his wives and his kids together, and he heads upstream gets his family across, and then he's left by himself. And notice what transpires. I want to read over again what Ray read to us because I think it's important. And then I want us to, to make some observations about Jacob's wrestling match with God because uh, we're like Jacob, and at times we get involved in wrestling with God. And so let's read, read this account and then go back and make some observations. Let's start with verse 24. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, this man touched the socket of his, of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And then... God said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? Or actually what he says is, what is the nature of your name? And he said, my name is Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask me my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob named that place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. I want us to notice several things about this account that I think are probably true of us if we're wrestling and struggling against God, not wanting to do what He desires for us to do. And the first thing I'd like for you to notice is that God had to isolate Jacob. He had to get him alone. 
because Jacob was involved in too many good things. Um, he was president of this club and vice president of that club. He had a good job and he, he was doing all kinds of things with his family, evidently. But he was too busy to listen to God. God had tried a number of times to speak to him, but it's just like Jacob didn't get the picture. He didn't, he didn't catch on to the fact that God wanted to take care of him and that God wanted to protect him. And our world is like that too. Don't we have opportunity to get caught up in all kinds of things? Uh, there's sports and there's TV and there's clubs and, and this and that and everything else. And they're not bad things necessarily, but we get so caught up with the things around us that we don't have time to hear God. Everything else is so loud and, and coming at us so fast that it kind of blots out who God is. I remember when I was at Bible school, I was, uh, my, my main desire was to be a missionary when I was in Bible school. And I was, I was breezing through Bible school, doing really well. The, the grades were coming easy. I uh, had money to buy cans of pop every once in a while. I could buy meals between meals, go get a hamburger. I had a girlfriend. Everything was going great. Except in my relationship with the Lord. It was like everything else was going so well, I didn't have time to spend time with the Lord. And I was studying to be a missionary, which is kind of uh, ironic, a paradox. Well, we were out playing football one day. And I got hit in the thigh really hard, and it hurt like crazy, but I thought, ah, I'm tough, I'll brush it off and I'll be okay tomorrow. Well, the next morning when I tried to get out of bed, I couldn't bend my leg, and when I did, it hurt like crazy. And I thought, man, I better go to the doctor and see what's wrong. So I went to the doctor and he said, oh, no problem, it's just a bad Charlie horse and you'll recover in about eight weeks. And it, uh, it hurt like crazy, and I thought, well, at least he could give me some crutches or something so people would feel sorry for me as I hobbled around school, but he wouldn't do that. I got back to the dorm. I'd missed class that day, and, and I was kind of hobbling around, and I don't know if, if you're like I am, but when I hurt, I get kind of down, and, and everything looks kind of gloom, and, and, I, and it's easy to feel sorry for yourself. And I was kind of doing that. But as I, I walked around the dorm, because I couldn't sit because it hurt, and I couldn't lay down because it hurt, so I was walking around, it still hurt. But I was thinking, I was thinking about why I was at Bible school, and I was thinking about my relationship with the Lord. I was pretty disappointed, thinking that I'd gotten so caught up in all the good things that were there at school that I had left God totally out of my life. God had isolated me. He had got me alone. There wasn't anybody else around. Classes were going on. And it was a good time of reflecting and saying, God, I've really, I've really blown it. And I confessed my sin, and I, I got back in fellowship with God. And you know what? That leg still hurt for eight weeks, but it was a good reminder that, uh, that uh, I had dealt in doing what God had instructed me to do, and that was to, to get right with Him. And God did that with Jacob. He isolated him so that... Uh, so that he could have a word with him. And, and notice that they were, they were wrestling there. I don't think this is a metaphor for they were there and Jacob was praying. I think they were rolling around in the dust and dust was flying and, and Jacob was struggling against God and God was struggling against Jacob and, and Jacob wouldn't give in and they were, they were fighting there. Another thing that uh, I'd like you to notice is that this wasn't just a regular man that Jacob wrestled with, but this man was God. And I think you see that in this account. It says a man wrestled with God. 
or, or with Jacob, and then it goes on and he is described as being God two other times. So Jacob is wrestling evidently with the Lord Jesus Christ, an angel of the Lord there. And they were fighting and, and they're rolling around there. And another thing I'd like for us to notice is that surrounding this whole event, there is it, it's kind of a mysterious kind of thing. There's an air of mystery there because uh, they're wrestling all night and then God says, let me go because the dawn is breaking. Almost like he didn't want Jacob to see him. And God is like that with us sometimes, I think. He knows us through and through. He knows everything about us. But we'll never know God totally until we see him face to face. And so he says, Jacob, let me go. And another thing that is kind of mysterious is that he asked Jacob his name. And Jacob says, my name's Jacob. And then Jacob says, what's your name? And he says, why do you ask my name? And God never told him his name. I thought that was interesting. In some of the studying I was doing, I found that in the ancient world that uh, men thought there that if they could possess a man's name, that they could uh, manipulate him and they could make him do what they want him to do. And I don't know about Jacob. Maybe he thought that if he knew God's name that he could make him do whatever he wanted him to do. And I think we think like that sometimes too. We plan out our plans and then we say, God, better get with it. Got to get these things done here. But you know, God isn't like that, is He? God is sovereign above everything and He does whatever He pleases whenever He wants. And God invites for us to investigate who He is by looking into the Word, by uh, talking with men and women who know Him. And God reveals Himself to us in a lot of different ways as we walk with Him. But God God won't be manipulated by us. God will do whatever He desires to do and whatever He wants to do. And then I think another thing that we ought to notice that's kind of key is that God cannot defeat Jacob until Jacob submits. They're wrestling all night. Jacob's being rebellious. And you think, well, can't God just do whatever He wants in someone's life? Isn't He omnipotent? Yeah, God is omnipotent, but God has limited Himself and He won't force us to do what we don't want to do. He's not going to wrestle us down the mat and give us a burn on the head with His knuckles and say, okay, you guys do what I want you to do. He's not going to force us to do that. He's going to allow us to decide for ourselves. They fought all night and then... God touches Jacob's thigh, the muscle there, and he dislocates his hip. And I think that's significant because the thigh muscle is probably the strongest muscle we have in, the, in our body. And when that's dislocated, Jacob can't fight too well anymore. He could have continued to fight, but I think he recognized his own weakness. And he goes from fighting and wrestling God to clinging on to him. And he clings to him and God says, let me go, Jacob. And Jacob says, I won't let you go until what? Until you bless me. And then God says, Jacob, what's your name? <laughs> and by that, he's not saying, uh, like when you introduce yourself to someone or you get an acquaintance, you walk up and say, hey, what's your name? And they say, Bill. And you say, mine's Howard. That's not what he's asking. What he's saying is, Jacob, 
what's the significance of your name? What does your name mean? And Jacob asked to stop and think. And you know what his name meant? Schemer, deceiver, manipulator. And I thought about that and I thought, you know, it would be good for us to think about our own character at this point. You know, if God were to ask you that question, he might not say, what is your name? But he'd say, what's the nature of your, of your life right now? What is your life like at this point? God has given us principles in His His Word. Some of you who are in high school here know that the Bible says, and some of you are younger in junior high, the the Bible says, be obedient to your parents. What do you do when your mom and dad says, okay, I want you in by 10.30, and you're planning on being out till 11.30, or they want you home right after school, and you were thinking you were going to do some other things after school. You know, what's your response when you're faced with with one of God's principles. Or some of you who are single and uh, still not married, and you know it's years past when you think you ought to have been married, what's your response? God says He'll provide everything we have need of. He has clearly in mind what He wants to do with your life. But do you try and manipulate some guy, gals, or guys, do you try and work it out with the gal going against maybe some of God's principles? so that you can get married? Or are you content to wait on God? Or how about you wives? God God says, submit yourselves to your husbands. Are you willing to do whatever He desires for you to do? When He makes a decision, are you strongly supporting Him with a positive attitude? Or is it easy to become negative and to, uh, to put Him down? Or dads, your responsibility is to provide for your families and to meet their needs and to help them along in their relationship with the Lord. But, uh, you know, the weather's nice, golf season's on, a lot of extra time to work out on the yard, uh, job is maybe demanding. What do you do when you're faced with that? You know your family has needs and yet all these other things are, are before you that you want to do. What are we doing when we're faced? With, uh, with God's will in our life to move one direction when we want to move another direction? Are we like Jacob? Are we wrestling and fighting? Or are we giving in to God's will? Jacob submitted to God and he told him what his name was and he recognized he was at the end of himself. And then God said, Jacob, your name will no longer be Jacob, but your name will be Israel. And the significance of that is is that Israel means prince with God, exalted one with God, one who exerts himself with God. And that name grew out of Jacob's willingness to admit that he was weak. I think if Jacob would have given up earlier, that God would have changed his name at that point. But but he kept hanging on to his own selfish desires and he kept asserting his own will, moving his own direction. And as he prevailed over Jacob, I think it's significant that he had to cripple Jacob so that Jacob would submit. He had to deal harshly with him. And Jacob limped for the rest of his life as a reminder about his encounter with God. It's interesting, too, if you go through the rest of the Old Testament up to the time of Moses, um, people of Israel did not eat uh, a portion of part of the hip 
And I think that that, uh, that was a memorial to Jacob's weakness. They didn't celebrate his strength, but they celebrated his weakness. There are two other passages of Scripture that that are very closely tied in with, with this account of, uh, of Jacob and his wrestling with God that kind of open it up and help us to see maybe what our response ought to be more. And one is a, a corollary passage in the New Testament. If you have your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We have an account of Paul, the apostle, a dynamic man, greatly used of God. On Paul's first missionary journey, he was in a place called Lystra, and he was stoned, and he was left outside of the city for being dead. And when he was there, God gave him some visions and some revelations, and uh, and and with those visions and revelations, if people thought that, uh, that he had gotten ad revelation, that he had been raised from the dead, Paul could have been... Uh, been exalted and lifted up and presented just like Christ was. And so he says that God did something to keep him from exalting himself in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Paul says, so that I wouldn't exalt myself, God gave me a thorn in the flesh that, it, that I might be buffeted. And, and the idea of the word buffet is to strike with the fist. And that kind of fits in with, uh, with Genesis, doesn't it? In the wrestling match. This is a boxing match. And, and God is allowing Satan to be, the, be involved in Paul's life to buffet him or to strike him. When we read that, we don't like that, do we? Because we think that that uh, we don't want Satan involved in that way. But God takes full responsibility for all that Satan does, and God is, is overall a sovereign, and he will overrule all the things that Satan does to try and do bad things in our life by using the things that are evil and tense of Satan. He turns those into good things and produces character and does in our life what he desires to do. And so he has, Paul has a thorn in the flesh. We're not sure what this thorn is, I used to think it was uh, his wife, maybe, but I've gotten married, and a wife isn't a thorn in the flesh. Believe me, it's just the opposite. So I don't think it was his wife. Some people think it might have been uh, some type of eye disease. We're not sure what the thorn is, but Paul's thinking was probably, Lord, if if I could get rid of this this uh, thorn in the flesh, I know I could serve you better. I'd be much more effective for you. So he comes to the Lord, and he says in verse 8, Concerning this thorn, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. He said, Lord, if you only take this away. And God's response was this. Here's what he said to Paul. He said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. Paul, when you're weak, you're strong. And here's what Paul's response was. Most gladly, therefore... I would rather boast about my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Paul was a quick learner. He learned the lesson that when he gives in to God, then he's strong. But if he would try and plunge ahead like Jacob and struggle with God and, and have his own way, then he would be weak. And we have that choice too. If we're wanting to plan out our own life and 
and do just what we want to do and leave God out, then really we're very weak. But if we're willing to cast ourselves on God and, and be willing to do what He desires for us to do, willing to follow His principles from Scripture, that's when we become strong. Turn to Hosea chapter 12, another passage of Scripture that that uh, helps explain this account of Jacob and God. The nation Israel came from this man Jacob. And Israel as a nation was very rebellious against God. And the prophet Hosea had warned them several times that uh, that they needed to repent and get right with God or, or they, they'd have to be dealt with. And these were his last words, the prophet's last words to Israel before they went into captivity. And here's what he said to them in verse 2 of chapter 12 of Hosea. The Lord also has a dispute with Judah. Judah was uh, the southern kingdom uh, of God's people. Israel was a nation that split down the line. And he said uh, he had a dispute with Judah and he will punish Jacob or the nation Israel. According to his ways, he will repay him according to his deeds. And then he reflects clear back to this time uh, when Jacob lived. And here's what he says about Jacob in verse 3. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. When he was younger, he was, he was one who tripped people up. And then in verse 3, the last part, it says, And in his maturity... He contended with God. Or in his maturity, when Jacob was mature, he was a prince with God. That's what that means. You know, we can be immature and we can plan out a strategy for our life and move ahead. Or we can be mature and we can say, God, I want you to control my life. And I'm willing to give up all these areas of my life that you would point out to me. And you know, if we were to admit it, I think we'd be a lot like Jacob. There are times in our life when we get to the place we want to do our own thing. And God intervenes in our life and He begins to discipline us. And at times we think that God hates us and He doesn't like us because He's dealing with us. But you know, that's not true at all. God loves us and He wants the best for us. And he wants to deliver us from ourselves that we might be able to live a life that's successful. And so, if you're rebelling against God in some area, God might have to do that to get you to see that He is the one who is the resource for life. And yet, God won't force you to change your mind, but He'll just uh, try and help you to see that He has your best interest in mind. But don't get the idea that every time some affliction comes, oh, I've been disobedient and I'm struggling with God because the Bible teaches in other places that God brings trials into our life to produce character. And I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know if you're here this morning and you've never entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you haven't ever invited Him to be the Lord of your life, it's, it's simple. You can just recognize that you're a sinner, recognize your need for Him and and confess to Him that you want Him to be Lord and invite Him to take control. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you can identify with what, what Jacob's life was like. You're struggling with God in a particular area and you're not willing to give in. And it's tough. Or maybe you're here and you're not struggling at all. Your relationship with God is, is right in tune. But I think we all need to evaluate our lives and we need to be willing 
to do whatever God wants to do in our life. Not our way, but we need to be willing to do it His way. Let's pray together. Father, thank You that You've given us the Word that in it we can see what real people were like that we can identify with. You haven't painted these glorious pictures that frustrate us and make us feel really down and out. And Lord, we can all identify with Jacob today because we've all been to the place where we've struggled with You. And I don't know what You're wanting to do in the lives of all of us here this morning, Lord, but I pray that You would uh, work in our lives quickly in the areas where we're struggling. Help us to realize that we need to admit that we have no ability to run our lives ourselves. All we'll do is mess it up. But help us to see that you're encamped around us and that you love us and you have only the best in mind for us. And Father, I pray that you'd wrestle with us if we're not willing to give in until we're willing to for our good. Thank you for teaching us this morning. In Christ's name, amen.